Well, good morning once again. Merry Christmas. Finally made it to Christmas week, and I hope you have uh, good things in store this week. If you have a Bible with you, go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is the passage of Scripture that we have been in now for the month of December. If you do not have a Bible with you, but you would like to follow along with us in this, you should be able to find a Bible in one of the chair racks that is there in front of you. And Hebrews chapter 2 is going to be found on page 1002 of the Bibles that are there in the chairs. And if you don't own a Bible and you want to take that one home, by all means, walk out with it. Uh, We are uh, very happy for you to have a copy of God's Word and we'll be glad to give that to you. As far as I know, Tom Petty never recorded a Christmas album, although we all will probably wish he had. But he did record a song almost uh, some 20 years ago called, You Don't Know How It Feels. And in that song, the chorus of that song, it captures something that most of us have felt at one time or another in life. The last chorus of that song simply goes this way, and you don't know how it feels, you don't know how it feels, no, you don't know how it feels to be me. I said a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 that I believe that one of our deepest desires as human beings is to be understood. To feel like there is someone out there who knows what it feels to be me. And we are sometimes perhaps skeptical that Jesus understands We are skeptical that Jesus really knows because in our experience oftentimes, the very people who are closest to us do not. I mean, think about it. There are people, no doubt, in the room this morning who who think, my own father doesn't really know me. My own mother doesn't really understand who I am or what I'm about. And these are persons that, that we share strands of DNA with. There are people here in this room this morning who think, if only my husband knew me. If only my wife understood me. If Only the past 27 years counted for something. I mean, you would think that spending that amount of time with somebody day in and day out would create a mutual understanding, and yet sometimes we see the the very opposite happens, that people move further and further apart with the people who are closest to them. And if those people don't understand, then how in the world could Jesus Our Christmas series, the title of it is called Just Like Us, because the verses that we've been thinking about together over the course of the past month that tell us that Jesus knows what it feels like to be you. Jesus knows what it feels like to be me. So let's read those verses together. 
and then think some more about them this morning. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. The Bible says this, Therefore he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, two weeks ago, we spent some time thinking about that phrase, he had to be like us in every respect. When Mary struggled through the pain of childbirth that night in the stable, it's important for us to remember that the child she delivered was not just God wrapped in a body. And that's sometimes the way we think of it sometimes. It was just God with a body slapped on him. But we have to remember that the scriptures teach us that Jesus was a real human being in every respect. In addition to a body, he took on the fullness of what it means to be human. And so he possesses, as we saw, emotions and passions and feelings and affection. He was a person who possessed the breadth of the human experience in himself, in its fullness, and in its completeness, which means we can look at a lot of people and sing that Tom Petty song, but you and I simply cannot look at Jesus and say, you don't know how it feels to be me. And Jesus doesn't understand how it feels to be you simply in a sensory way and the fact that he can taste and touch stuff. Jesus knows how it feels to be us. And the reason he knows how it feels is because of the truth we've been considering this month of December, simply this, Jesus was just like us. If you were with us last week, you saw that Jesus had to be made just like us. The Bible says it says he had to be made like us in every respect. And we said, what is that necessity? What is that need connected to? And we said, it can't be that, that God somehow painted himself a corner or put himself in a position where he had no other choice. That need, that necessity is directly connected to his objective, to his mission. If he was going to rescue us and reconcile us with God, then it was going to be necessary for him to be made like us in every respect. Now these verses contain, and there are more than these, but these verses contain two of those objectives. The first we looked at last week, which was to make propitiation. Jesus was made just like us to make propitiation, to, to uh, make an atonement for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can reconcile to God and only, not only our sin be dealt with, but our guilt and our shame be washed away so that we may not carry it with us anymore. A promise that seems almost too good to be true. But I want us to consider the second objective that's found in our text of him 
needing to be made just like us. And that second objective is simply this. Jesus was just like us also to help us in temptation. Jesus was made just like us to help us in temptation. Look again at verse 18. The Bible says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now there are two very simple truths wrapped up in that verse that I just read. And our responsibility as as people is to, to pick up both of these truths, acknowledge and understand both of them, while recognizing that our minds are limited in their ability to fully harmonize these two things that are true at the same time. But here is the first simple truth that we find in that verse. It's this, Jesus suffered temptation. That's what the Bible says. He suffered when tempted. And I want to make two statements about that temptation. The first is this. He suffered temptation sinlessly. He suffered temptation sinlessly. Now, the Bible doesn't make that explicit in the verses that we just read. It's actually going to wait two chapters to Hebrews chapter 4 to make it explicit. But in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, it tells us that Jesus, in every respect, there's our phrase again, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Which means, the, the thing that we can, we can conclude from that is that not all temptations are sinful. If Jesus can be legitimately tempted and not sin, then it follows that not all temptations are sinful. A great theologian from the 1600s, John Owen who is of no relation to me, although I'd like to pretend so. And maybe we are. Um, Now, maybe we'll just assume we are because we have the last name. Let's just assume we're related. Uh, He says that when a temptation comes from without, that means outside of us, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil, unless it be consented to. So there's a sense in which, and we've all experienced this, we're we're going on our merry way, minding our own business, just trying to have a good day, and a temptation is set in front of us. That act of temptation that is placed in front of us is not necessarily in and of itself sinful, though we can make a choice to pursue that temptation. There are, however, other temptations that, are, that come from within and are in and of themselves sinful. Now, we know this because the Bible uses this kind of language sometimes. The Bible talks about our flesh. If you've been around the Bible or churchy stuff for any length of time, then you've probably come across that, that, that language in the Bible talking about our flesh. Well, what is our, what is our flesh referring to? Is it, is it talking to this, about this stuff? No. 
When the Bible is talking about our flesh, the Bible is talking about our, our, our inclinations towards sin. Our sin nature, you might say. It is, the, it is the part of us that is corrupted in such a way that we crave that which is wrong, wholly apart from any kind of external temptation given to us. Let me give you an illustration of that. We've talked about this before, but some of you are familiar with the African church father, Augustine, from the 4th century. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions, and in Confessions, he, he, talks, he writes through, talks through a time when he was a, a young person, and he decided that he wanted to steal pears from the tree of a man in his town. And he, as, he's, as he's working through this, one of the things that he highlights is he did not steal the pears, and he did eventually steal the pears. He did not steal the pears because he was in great need and would, not, would have no food without them. He had his needs met. He did not steal the pears because he was hungry that moment and, you know, McDonald's wasn't open. Chick-fil-A, I'm sorry, from here, we're in church. Use, <laughs> use the right stuff. Okay, he doesn't, it's not a Robin Hood thing where he's going to steal these pears so that he can give them to somebody else in need. As Augustine is thinking about his thought processes there, he wanted to steal the pears purely to experience the thrill of theft. He didn't even eat the pears. He threw them. This is, this is a, a corruption within him and within us where there are times when there, we just want what's wrong because we do. We need to make it clear that Jesus' temptations were external to him and did not spring from some kind of internal sin nature because Jesus did not possess a sin nature. But we also need to remember that this inclination towards sin is not something that is fundamental to your humanity. It is a corruption of our humanity, but is it not a fundamental aspect of it? Otherwise, Jesus would not be genuinely human. But the Bible tells us that the temptations he did suffer, he suffered sinlessly. The temptations that he experienced in his life never resulted in sin, in action, or word, or thought, or even motivation. Just think about that for a moment. How's your track record today? Mine's not so good. I mean, there are times when we are able to, to, uh, to control our actions. I mean, thank God we don't act on every impulse. But, man, it's hard to control your mouth. I mean, one of the things the, the Bible says is that the, the tongue is, is restless. It's untamable. You know, my paraphrase of the Bible there is, hey, you're a better man than I am if you can tame your tongue. I mean, just think about the stuff that's come out of your mouth this week. And then consider the fact that in action, in speech, 
drilling down even more in thought. Jesus lived a life in which he never, at one time, even partially, a little bit, gave in to the temptation to sin. He did not sin. There's a second statement that we have to hold up with this, okay? He, we, we know that the Bible says that he suffered temptation sinlessly. But the other truth that the Bible gives us is not only did he suffer temptation sinlessly, but he suffered temptation genuinely. And we sometimes don't, can't figure out and don't think I'm going to be able to, 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 to thread the needle on that for you to your satisfaction in every way. But the Bible presents a picture of Jesus who suffers temptation genuinely. And of course, we know the big example of that, Matthew 4, Jesus has gone into the wilderness. He is fasting and he's praying. And the, and the Bible says that the devil comes to him, that refers to him as the tempter. It comes to him in this weakened physical state. And tempts him by twisting the scripture in three different ways. And Jesus responds by untwisting the scripture and speaking it back to his tempter. And we see that after that, he's ministered to by the angels. He successfully resists temptation. But we need not think that Jesus' temptations, as we sometimes do, were limited to that one time. As if Jesus was able to move out of that and say, whew, glad that's over. Now I want you to think about what occasions the most temptations for many of us. Now that, that's, a, that's a, a, a broad thing, but one thing I think that we can all identify with is when we think about how many of our temptations to sin spring from our relationships. I wouldn't do the things that I do if you didn't do whatever. I wouldn't have spoken to you like that if you didn't do X, Y, or Z. You see, you see my, the things that I do are your fault. Now, that's not to deny the fact that often we respond to people acting ridiculous in our lives, and we all have that. But, but our greatest temptations often spring from the relationships of the people that are closest to us. So imagine living day in and day out with Judas. Think for a moment about how hard it is to live with someone in the aftermath of a betrayal. Most of us have been betrayed in some way or other, some in small ways and some in some pretty, pretty life-altering ways we've been betrayed by somebody. And I want you to think about how hard it is to live with that person or to come in close contact with that person afterwards and, and all the temptations to bitterness and hatred and yes, maybe wanting to kill them. Okay, it's hard enough to, it's hard enough when somebody has already 
stabbed you in the back and twisted the knife. But what if you spent a whole bunch of time with them leading up to knowing they were going to do that? Think about Peter. Take it out of the Judas level. Peter was a great guy in a lot of ways. He's the kind of guy you want, you want on your team. But he's also a guy that's always shooting off his mouth. He's also a guy that's, that's writing checks he can't cash. There's a point where Peter is once again shooting off his mouth and Jesus says, can you get behind me, Satan? <laughs> Imagine being with a person who, when you're talking about betrayal, says, hey, I got your back no matter what. I'm your ride or die, Jesus. And imagine looking at that person as Jesus did and saying, you don't know what you're And imagine Peter did not only departing from Jesus at his great moment of greatest need, but even denying that he knows him. And then consider Jesus coming back after the resurrection and he's out there on the beach with Peter and I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment. And imagine yourself walking up to Peter. You see him in the distance. You're, you're walking up to him. I want you to think about all the things that would be running through your mind. Well, I'll tell you exactly what would be running through my mind. The first time I see Peter, I'm going to say, hey, thanks for staying with me. Thanks for the help there. You said you weren't going to deny me, and man, you stuck to it. I mean, I'm going to be tempted to say, I don't ever want to see you again. You talk a big game, but what you do doesn't match what you say. Is that what Jesus does? I mean, you want to think about the temptations that spring from those kinds of relationships. And then remember that with all of the difficult people that Jesus rubbed shoulders with on a daily basis, and people like me, you, he rubs shoulders with on a daily basis, and not once does he even begin to sin. But he suffers these temptations genuinely. Jesus wasn't just putting on a show when it came to his struggles with temptation. His temptations were genuine. His victories hard fought. Shed, a theologian from the 1800s says, Because our Lord overcame his temptations, it does not follow that his conflict and success was an easy one for him. His victory cost him tears and blood. Because an army is victorious, it by no means follows that the victory was cheap. Jesus suffers temptation sinlessly, but he suffers temptation genuinely. 
And because he does both of those things, because Jesus suffers temptation, I want us to see the second truth that's contained in these verses. Because Jesus suffered temptation, he is able to help those who are suffering temptation. Well, that's me. Because Jesus experienced that, he's able to help people like me. And that's pretty good news, isn't it? Isn't it? (laughs) Am I the only person that struggles with temptation? Because that feels weird. (laughs) This is good news. I want you to think about some of the temptations that you have faced in your life. I want you to think for a moment about a a sustained time of temptation that was not an all-out, that that was just an all-out battle, where you are just drawn to something, and you know you should not and must not, and so you start with a reserve of strength, but what starts happening after you get broken down? You start moving into the bargaining phase. The bargaining phase with temptation is, you know, it's one time. Uh, Or, you know, I had thought this was really a big deal, but I'm not so sure now. Maybe this thing that's clearly the wrong thing is actually the right thing. I've been through that. Where we go through these, these fights with temptations, we, we try to justify ourselves, we, we plead with God for help, we try to reason ourselves into the fact that maybe this is an exception, that you know, I know, because we're made of the same stuff, what it's like to, to struggle with temptation. So to hear that there is a form of help available to us in our temptation is welcome news, isn't it? So we ask ourselves the question, what is the help? I'm very excited to know that there is help in temptation. What is the help? Well, look at verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 2. And as you look, you will notice that there is no verse 19 (laughs) of Hebrews chapter 2. Saw some of you like, do I have a different Bible? (laughs) (laughs) All right, great. Because Jesus suffered, he's able to help those of us who are suffering temptation. What is the help, Jesus? And there is no verse 19. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I think part of the answer to that question is found just two chapters later in Hebrews chapter 4. And so if you have your finger there in, in, in chapter 2, flip over if you want to chapter 4. Because I think these two verses, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, are going to give us some answers about the help that's available to us in temptation. The Bible says, beginning in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, when we read a couple of those verses, at first, let's be honest, at first, we might be tempted to be a tad underwhelmed. Because sometimes you overlook the help you've been given because you're looking for help in a different form. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we hear that Jesus has suffered in temptation so he's able to help us, what we often, I think, hear is, oh, good, Jesus is going to make it so that I'm not tempted. Or Jesus is going to make it so he's going to remove the temptations so that I can't stumble into them. Or Jesus is going to wave a magic wand over me so that no matter what temptation comes to me, I always say no to it. That's sometimes the help we think we're looking for. But this is different than, than the issue of trials. Does the Bible promise that Jesus is going to help us in trial? Yes. The Bible tells us that Jesus helps us in our trials. But what form does that help take? Does Jesus tell us, does the Bible promise us that the, that the help for trials is that the trials stop existing? No. In fact, the Bible tells us that sometimes it gets better before it gets worse. The Bible never promises us that we're never going to have trials. The Bible promises that the help comes as we go through the trial, not around or over the trial. And the same thing is true here. We want the help to be that in the moment of temptation, I get zapped with a thing that kind of turns me off so I don't feel it anymore. That would be fantastic. And a form of that is coming. <laughs> but because that's what we're looking for, we may actually overlook the real help that Jesus does give us in temptation. There are three qualities of Jesus, our high priest. Remember, a priest is a person that goes between humans and God and reconciles them. There are three qualities of Jesus, our high priest, that you desperately need that make him a source of help when you are feeling that, that magnetic pull of temptation. Here's the first one. Jesus is sympathetic. He's sympathetic. Verse 15 states it in the negative. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a, stating it in the negative. We're going to say it in the positive. The Bible is telling us we have, you have, a priest who is very able to sympathize with you in your weakness. Now this word is used only twice in the New Testament. And both of those uh, words occur here in the book of Hebrews. The other place translates this word as having compassion. But this word is a, a compound word, which is a way of speaking of two words that have been glued together 
that means to feel with. So when the Bible says that, that, that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, the Bible is telling us that Jesus has compassion on us in it. He is able to feel it with us. Jesus is a help because he's able to sympathize. It is a Jesus who feels with his brothers and sisters that are battling temptation, sometimes successfully, but other times not. Jesus can sympathize because he's been there more than any of us will ever understand or be able to know. Now, it is one thing to have the sympathy of a person who, who has not experienced what you've experienced. None of us can have all the life experiences. And so I regularly talk to people in my office who I can extend a real and genuine sympathy to even though I have not personally experienced what they are experiencing. But I can put myself in their shoes. I can empathize with them with what is going on in their life. But one of the reasons that we have support groups is because people often find help when they're speaking to a person who's not only showing sympathy, but is showing sympathy from a place of experience. I know what it feels like because I've been there. The Bible is telling us that we have a high priest who is at the right hand of the throne of God at this very moment interceding on our behalf and who is sympathetically disposed towards our weaknesses. Which means he's not constantly looking at us and saying, why aren't you stronger? That's good news. A second quality of this high priest, Jesus, that makes him able to help is that he is available. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's the language of availability. Draw near to the throne of grace. He wouldn't tell us that we should draw near if he wasn't available or if he was available, but he had very specific office hours. People who are sympathetic to us are not always available. Even the best support groups, even the best counselors have to sleep sometime. Even the best support groups, even the best counselors, even the best people in your, li your, your life have their own problems to deal with. Even the best counselors have other patients or clients that they help. But when is the throne of grace available? It's our hours of operation are 
from when you need it to when you need it. It's always available to us. We find the throne of grace when we are in our time of greatest need. The throne of grace is available when we are in the thick of a battle with temptation, and that is the very last place we want to go. See, you and I want to go hang out at the throne of grace when we can just hang out at the throne of grace. Just stopping in to say, hi, I don't need anything. That's when I want to be there. It's a very different thing when we have to go to the throne of grace when we are in the thick of temptation. It's a very different thing when we're in the middle of temptation and we have to bring the very worst version of ourselves to the throne of grace. I want to bring the best version of myself. But the Bible tells us that oftentimes when we need it most is when we have to bring our worst self there. You and I don't want to go to the throne of grace when everything in us wants something wicked. Whether it be great or small. Because I, I mean, I don't want to say that to God. As if God would hear it and be like, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't know you were that bad. For real. We don't want to go to the throne of grace in our worst moments when we are most struggling. We don't want to pray the honest prayer that is, Lord, I need you because nothing in me wants you. It's at precisely that time that we're supposed to go. And what happens at thrones? Thrones represent rule. And the Bible says that this throne is a throne of grace, which means when you bring your worst self to the throne, you find out that grace rules. That leads me to the third characteristic that makes Jesus a form of help and temptation. Not only is he sympathetic, not only is he available, but in the third place, he is merciful. I think we don't want to bring our worst selves to him because we can't imagine that our worst self will get mercy. There's a version of me that qualifies, but not that version. <laughs> and I think we think this way because, frankly, of our own lack of mercy. For us, mercy is for people who deserve it. I've got a ton of mercy for the people I think deserve it. 
The people who I don't think deserve it, it's like, well, you got yourself into this. What do you want? Mercy is for people oftentimes we think who deserve it. Mercy is for drug addicts, but not dealers. Mercy is for juvenile delinquents, but not deadbeat dads. There are hierarchies in our mind of people that we think are deserving or aren't deserving of mercy. Or mercy is for people who haven't given in yet to the temptation. As if, as if Jesus stands at the ready for people who haven't done it yet. What about the people who have? Is there mercy for them? Is the throne of grace a place where people who have done it, who have given into the temptation, can find mercy? That's what I want to know. What about when this situation that I find myself in is a rerun for the thousandth time? I mean, we think God is like us, and if God was like me, we'd start having the boundaries conversation. Now, boundaries are right and good in our human relationships, and we have to talk about the rightful place of boundaries, but wouldn't it be encouraging to know that when you leave the throne of grace for the 65,000th time for the same thing you just asked for, Jesus does not walk back to the Father and say, I think it's time we had the boundaries conversation with them. Wouldn't it be nice to know that though we come again and again and again in need, Jesus never runs out of mercy. He welcomes your worst self in your worst, worst moments and offers mercy and grace whether you fall or not. His arms welcome those whose arms have already emptied the needle and are asking for grace not to do it again. He welcomes those who have descended into the cesspool of filth on their phone for one hour and in their guilt and their shame are asking for it not to be a second. You see, th we think Jesus is there for us when you haven't screwed up. But what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is precisely there because we have. Now, I don't know how to put all this stuff together. And I said that at the beginning, so don't hit me with the fine print. I don't know how God does that. I don't exactly know how God, Jesus can be sinless and have a genuine experience of temptation. I can't talk about the ins and outs of that perfectly with you. I can't understand how God would have enough mercy that we could come to him again and again and again. One of the things that I'm learning is maybe I don't have to. We think 
fools that we are, that we're just going to get it all figured out. And then by George, we'll tell all of you how we did it. Come on. You don't have it figured out. Neither do I. I think one of the parts of faith in the Christian life is, is recognizing and affirming things that the Bible says are true. And saying, maybe someday, God will help me understand how it all works together. We're going to sing a song and a few moments together called, O Come All You Unfaithful. A lot of times we sing songs like, O Come All Ye Faithful, and we feel like the call of God, the call, uh, the call to, to God's people is for the faithful to come like we're always, we're always faithful. But the truth of the matter is we are people who are deeply, desperately flawed. People who are desperately in need of grace. People who are desperately broken. People who feel that magnetic pull towards that should not. And the good news of the gospel is that God says, I want those kind of people. Let me tell you something. If you're with us this morning and you don't know Christ that way, you you may be sitting here thinking, I'm at a church. Like, where's the doing stuff? Where's the list of stuff I'm supposed to do? And maybe you're even fighting that thought of, well, it, it can't be that good. If you're feeling that thought, it can't be that good, then you are just starting to get it. How does a person know Jesus that way? The answer is deceptively simple. The Bible says all those who come to Jesus in faith, believing that he lived that perfect life without sin, died a sacrificial death on our behalf for our sins, and then rose triumphant over sin and death in the grave. The Bible says that everybody who comes to to him in faith, believing those things, finds Forgiveness of sins and rest for their soul and a never-ending supply of mercy at the throne of grace. We call upon you to believe that good news this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the things that we have been able to meditate on just beginning to scratch the surface of the good news. We thank you that Jesus, our brother and high priest, was made just like us in every respect so that he could reconcile us to you in a way that can never be broken. Lord, we admit to you that we are a room full of struggling sinners who walk around acting like we are perfect saints. And so we confess 
our pride. And we ask you to help us see our weakness, our smallness, our dependency. We pray that you would help us to run freely to the throne of grace. And Lord, if there is someone who has never found Jesus, then I pray that this morning would be the morning they turn to him in faith and are gloriously saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.